good morning, Mike. Um, we will be um, talking about um, the Gambia versus Myanmar case, and um, you know, with uh, um, a special um, uh, attention to the provisional measure uh, response or the first report that Myanmar filed um, on 23rd of May. Uh, first, um, you know, Mike is um, a seasoned ICJ watcher and uh, worked at the International Court of Justice for four years. He's currently um, visiting uh, uh, adjunct professor of law at the uh, uh, Trinity College Dublin um, in the final stages of finishing his uh, PhD thesis in international law at the University of Cambridge. He was a graduate of Amherst College and Yale Law School in um, the United States. Um, when I first met um, Mike back in April 2018, almost, um, well, basically exactly a year, uh, sorry, two years ago, uh, the, the Mike was uh, the very first one, uh, to the best of my knowledge, to bring up the um, uh, the ICJ as a potential value or venue for um, you know Rohingyas uh, the seeking justice and accountability. So it's it's been a, a, a real pleasure and an honor to um, have benefited from Mike's um, you know a massive intellectual contrib contributions to the uh, the ICJ uh understanding among us activists particularly those of us who do not have a legal training or background mike's um sobering and but uh grounded um uh, expertise is extremely important so um mike can you give us an update on what is happening at the icj on um you know with respect to myanmar versus sorry the gambia versus myanmar case sure so um we're, we're having this conversation on uh, May 29th, 2020. So we're just about a week after Myanmar has submitted its first report in response to an order that the court issued in January. So I'm going backwards here a little bit, but if we go back to um, the latter part of last year, uh, 2019, we had the Gambia decide to bring a case under the Genocide Convention against Myanmar at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. So it's the Gambia versus Myanmar. Uh, but the Gambia is really acting on behalf of uh, the Rohingya, who are the alleged victims in this case of acts uh, of genocide by the government of Myanmar. So that case was filed. And the very first thing that the Gambia did very sensibly was request what are called provisional measures people who are listening to this um, or watching this at some point are probably already following the case and might, might know all this stuff already. But a provisional measures order is kind of like a, a request for emergency relief um, while the longer case is pending. Because the case is going to take a few years to work through the system, the, the parties have to make their arguments, the, case has, the court has to hear arguments and then come up with its judgment. That will take um, a few years. So in the meantime, the Gambia has come in and asked the court to issue certain um, directives at Myanmar telling them what they must do or not do to preserve the rights at issue in the case. So those are both the rights of the Gambia as a party to the Genocide Convention, but also in parallel kind of the rights of the Rohingya not to be the victims 
of acts of genocide. Uh, so the Gambia was successful in this petition to the court. The court heard arguments in December. People listening to this might have followed those arguments, which were really interesting and very compelling because you had Aung San Suu Kyi appear in The Hague to argue on behalf of Myanmar. Uh, and then the court issued its order in January unanimously, uh, which was unusual and striking, including even the judge appointed by Myanmar, because uh, states are allowed to appoint a judge to the court for that particular case if they don't already have a judge of, of, their, of their nationality sitting on the court. So a unanimous judgment indicating these provisional measures, so telling Myanmar that it has to do certain things. Um, we can get into more detail about the strengths or weaknesses of what the court ordered, because it looks really great on paper, I'd say, and when you look a little bit more closely, um, it didn't necessarily go as far as the Gambia wanted. And in some of the ways in which it didn't go that far, um, dilute or weaken the power of the order a little bit, I would say. But in short, the court ordered Myanmar to take all, um, all measures um, within its power to prevent acts of genocide from taking place. And the court specifically enumerated the same uh, language of the Genocide Convention in Article 2. So that means not only um, preventing killing of members of the group, the group being the Rohingya, um, but also uh, preventing acts that would cause serious bodily harm or mental harm to the group. Um, make sure I'm reading this correctly as I look at the order here. Uh, Myanmar has to uh, take measures to avoid deliberately inflicting uh, on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about physical destruction in the whole or part. So this is language straight from the Genocide Convention um, and has to prohibit um, measures that would prevent births within, within the group. So the court repeated those instructions. But they did a couple of other things too. They ordered Myanmar um, to take measures to make sure that evidence relating to the case isn't destroyed. Uh, and they also ordered uh, Myanmar to periodically report to the court on what it's doing to comply with those other instructions. And the first report was what we talked about a, mo a moment ago, was due on May 23rd. So that was four months after the court's order. Uh, and then every six months thereafter while the, while the case is being heard. So we have confirmation that Myanmar has indeed submitted that report. The report is not public. Gambia will now have a chance to respond to the report because they get to see the report. And then I think we don't know right now whether the court will unilaterally decide to make those reports, uh, the report and the response public, whether they will keep them um, confidential for now maybe forever, maybe they get released at some later stage in the case. Uh, we don't quite know what's going to happen with that. So that's where oh, the, we are now. Yeah, um, but the Gambia team um, uh, will definitely have access to the, uh, the full text of Myanmar's report. It's, it's their right uh, you know, to, to file a counter, uh, you know, uh, the counter report or counter argument to the report, you know, whether Myanmar has, um, uh, the, in Gambia's uh, uh, judgment, uh, comply with these measures. How do you, how do you, you know, uh, determine, you know, uh, whether Myanmar has complied, you know, uh, either in good faith or cosmetically uh, the, with the provisional measures? So my understanding as a lay person is that, uh, the, the, you know, the, the provisional measures, the orders 
uh, binding, not simply of advisory nature. You know, the court wasn't advising Myanmar to what to do. The court had ordered. You know, it's it's the equivalent of legal injunction. You know, yes. uh, in, in some legal interpretations. And so, can you comment on what would constitute uh, compliance? Because there's a lot of a uh, misunderstanding about whether Myanmar needs to change the uh, the citizenship law or lift all the restrictions on freedom of uh, movements for the Rohingyas. You know, uh, the, and the, the coming even from the human rights community and activists and advocates. Uh, the, there seem to be uh, a lot of confusions around what constitutes compliance with the provisional measures issued uh, on the 23rd of January uh, this year. Yeah, well, I'm glad you asked me about that, um, Zarni, because I certainly, in the lead up to the um, deadline for Myanmar to file its report, and then in, in the days um, following, you know, I was really struck by the comments and kind of analysis that I was seeing on social media and in newspaper. Uh, columns and in some reports by NGOs, which took a really um, negative, pessimistic view of, of what's happening in terms of compliance. And I wanted to speak to that a little bit, uh, because I think at some level this maybe misunderstands or misinterprets the function of provisional measures. And people may disagree with me about this, and this or this may just not be what people want to hear, and I get that. But I guess I would want to suggest an analogy which is that I think of provisional measures as kind of like a temporary dam. So you are the victim of periodic catastrophic flooding and you want to get to the root of that flooding and stop that river from overflowing the banks all the time and wrecking your life. That's a big project. And so you maybe you build a temporary dam to hold back the worst while you deal with the bigger problem, while you gather the resources to build a permanent dam or to get to the root of the problem. Provisional measures are like that temporary dam that hold back the worst, that hold back the worst type of catastrophic harm that you might suffer if nothing were done. And so in that light, I think at a minimum, we can look at what's happened since January up to the present and say, well, we're not seeing, to my knowledge, in Myanmar, the same types of mass atrocities blatant intentional killings that we saw uh, and, and terrible you know, gender sexual based abuse. We're not seeing that kind of thing that we saw in August 2017. We're not seeing a repeat of that. And so that may look like a very low bar for Myanmar to have to cross, and it is. Don't do the worst possible things that humans can do to other humans. But at a minimum, that is what I see the ICJ provisional measures as telling Myanmar. Do not, while this case is pending, or ever, but while this case is pending, you must absolutely make sure that nothing happens like what happened in August 2017. Now we can debate, there's going to be an argument about whether what happened then was or wasn't genocide, whether or not violations of the Genocide Convention occurred. That's the issue on the merits. That's what this case is about. But you need to make sure those types of mass intentional killings are not happening. And to my knowledge, that hasn't been happening. Okay, so if that's the measure of compliance, Myanmar is arguably complying. Right. Now then we get into this much trickier issue of, as you said, you know, a lot of uh, people are saying, well, Myanmar should be um, uh, 
enacting legislation to solve the citizenship question and grant full citizenship to the Rohingya, they should be repealing all of the discriminatory laws that are on the books. They should be repealing the travel restrictions that are in place. To me, um, the travel restriction one is maybe a harder issue, but things like fixing all these discriminatory laws and fixing the citizenship issue, it would be great to see Myanmar do that. But I don't necessarily see that as a requirement of complying with the provisional measures. Whether those existing laws and structural um, forms of uh, systematic, systemic forms of discrimination in Myanmar constitute genocide or are evidence of genocidal intent, that is the issue in the main case. That is what the parties will be arguing about for the next couple of years and what the court will have to decide. And so to interpret the provisional measures as requiring Myanmar to take the types of actions that essentially decide those issues right now up front, I don't think is really a reasonable or fair way of interpreting the court's order. I do want to say, though, this is a problem of the court's own making, because the court chose very broad wording in its order. They, as I said before, they said Myanmar must take all measures within its power to prevent violations of the Genocide Convention. So if you just read that, and for a layperson in particular, you read that, you think, well, of course, Myanmar should be doing all of these big, big things, making big structural changes. They should be doing everything in their power to make sure that the situation of it continuing, as you've put it, a slow burning genocide is ended. But can I can I that, just that, add that, throw that, you? That, uh, I just think that, that misleads. Uh, you know that may be misleading because all measures I don't think really mean that in this context. Yes. Right. Okay. Um. Uh, l l let me just throw like um at one point that has not been brought up in, in the conversation around the uh, uh, Gambia versus Myanmar case, uh, the, with respect to the provisional measures. You know, maybe the um, the Gambia legal team went for uh, something. You know the much more tangible, uh, you know, uh, com uh, uh, convincing and uh, with a sense of urgency, which is, uh, you know, we need to protect about half a million, you know, Rohingyas that are remain that remain in the country, and we have basically across the border one million Rohingyas who survived and fled, uh, you know, various uh, waves of past uh, violence and. Uh, 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 persecution yeah, over the last, um, uh, let's say, like you know, 15, 20 years. You know, the Gambia case uh, that puts a limit to how far they would look at, how, how far back they would go back. You know, basically, 2016 and 2017, two waves of uh, terror and violence. Yeah, uh, but th this uh, the policy of persecution has been well documented to have been established. Uh, over a few decades. And so we don't even, I mean, the case does not even consider within its parameters, uh, you know, the issue of um, repatriation, restitution, you know, like, because the, we have a situation where the uh, targeted or scapegoated uh, protected group, the, minor, uh, the Rangers in this case, you know, uh, there are more Rohingyas outside of Burma's jurisdictions, uh, you know, within national boundaries than there are uh, inside. You see, you see what I mean? Yeah. And so, uh, the, the, the two, I mean, one thing to, for the court to establish a temporary dam, 
to protect the, uh, uh, you know, half a million Rohingyas inside. But what about the, um, you know, one million uh, Rohingyas in Bangladesh and another half a million or more in the diaspora that have absolutely no basic or citizenship rights anywhere in the world, you know, uh, the, you know including in Muslim countries like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, or uh, Malaysia. You know, uh, right. Well, you know, I think, so the, the larger community of Rohingya that you're talking about, all the people who um, have fled or been forced out of the country, um, are certainly involved in the case, but I, I think probably from the provisional measures perspective, although those communities are very vulnerable, the life in the camps is precarious, difficult, um, far from ideal. But I think that the Gambia's focus was on protecting the remaining Rohingya in Myanmar from the same types of um, mass violence that we saw in 2016 and more, and then even um, in a more intense variety in 2017. So it isn't that Gambia um, isn't uh, thinking about those, that segment of the protected group, I, I suppose, but just that that would have, I think, not been realistic for them to try to get relief on provisional measures. I mean, they did ask now, Gambia did something clever, I thought, smart in their request for provisional measures. They asked for a more specific uh, order than what the court gave. They asked the court to actually enumerate specific types of conduct, types of crimes, really, that they were asking um, the court to instruct Myanmar not to engage in, to prevent from happening, rather than just the vague wording of Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. And the problem with the court just repeating Article two is that what constitutes, um, for example, uh, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its destruction is hotly contested. Myanmar will disagree about what types of conduct violate Article two C, that's Article two C, um, will disagree with what Gambia might say or what Rohingya activists might say constitute um, those types of conditions. So the court um, backed away from uh, addressing some of the more uh, specific types of relief that Gambia asked for. Um, you know, and I also want to say by, by me suggesting that this is only about preventing mass killing, I don't mean to suggest that I think Myanmar is in perfect compliance with the provisional measures order either. I, I don't mean to say that at all. We don't know what's in its report. We know that um, very belatedly in April, the government issued these three directives that seemed um, aimed at creating some material for its compliance report, more or less an order from the central government to military commanders not to commit genocide, which of course is an obligation that they have anyway. Um, and another um, instruction about preserving evidence and preventing destruction of evidence and another uh, directive about hate speech. Uh, and that's all fine, but of course, what would be more interesting in Myanmar's compliance report isn't the fact that they issued these directives, but how are the directives being implemented? What's the evidence that they're doing anything? And I would hope, and I would expect, Gambia to be pressing on that in, in their response to the report. Because there are a few other issues too, things that have been in the news over these past few months that do raise legitimate questions about compliance. Um, many people listening to this will be familiar with the fact that there's been an internet
blackout in Rakhine or in parts of Rakhine for much of this period of time. I think that raises interesting or um, interesting is not the right word, um, raises concerns about compliance, particularly because um, the internet blackout, I think hinders the ability to make sure that evidence is being preserved. It certainly doesn't enhance the ability to make sure um, that effective measures are in place to preserve evidence. So that's something I think if I were on Gambia's legal team, I would I would be raising that. Well, I, I, I don't know if you're aware, <clears throat> you know, uh, the um, just uh, um, before the um, May 23rd report was filed, um, uh, the, the Myanmar government issued uh, um, eviction notices, uh, that, you know, to over 1,000, you know, yeah. non-Rohingyas who have occupied uh, or taken over the properties that, that were, um, you know, uh, originally belonging to the Rohingyas. And then like, you know, within a week, uh, they rescinded uh, the, the order, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and also, you know, the Mongdo, uh, uh, the northern uh, most uh, town in the um, western Myanmar, where, you know, the uh, uh, most of the um, uh, population fled from, yeah, Mongdo. Uh, the you know uh, out of the two states um, Chin and uh, adjacent Rakhine state you know the the, uh, the the Rakhine is the crime state obviously in this case uh, the the internet blackout continues but the um, you know the vacated Mondo township the internet was lifted uh, in in you know the um, in, in my view what the Myanmar government is trying to do is a, a score brownie points. You know, with the code saying, you know, basically creating bullet points saying, look, that these are the uh, uh, the, the compliance uh, measures that we have uh, undertaken as a state under your order. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and obviously, like you know, the people are going to have uh, uh, the you know the strong reason to question Myanmar's motives here. But but I think the. Uh, the, may, may, maybe like it would be helpful for uh, the, uh, the, for us to understand, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, coming from you as a, a former legal or, uh, officer of the ICJ, um, how would you address the um, the you know as the uh, the case goes for the merits argument? Yeah? How how would you um, how would the Gambia? Uh, address the issue of um you know genocidal intent you know because the the, the there you know the there have been only just a, a very very handful of cases that tried uh, or tried or argued before this court and there's there isn't much international jurisprudence to rely on uh to as the uh, the, the case proceeds and so well, what are the things that, um, that the court would be um, uh, uh, open to uh, uh, entertaining in terms of the Gambia's argument to establish the genocidal intent? That seems to be the most uh, sticking point in this case. Absolutely. Um, let me turn to that. Although, let me just close. The, I'm glad you, before I turn to that, to close the loop on this question about compliance with the provisional measures. I'm really glad you brought up that point about the the eviction notice that was then revoked within a week. Um, I noticed that too. And again, I think that's exactly the type of thing that the 
Gambia should be raising um, in its response to the court. Um, you know, it might be a little tricky to say, well, what does that actually have to do with compliance with the, with the order? I would again pin it to this question about making sure that evidence isn't destroyed. If you have people moving into vacated villages, tearing down burned out structures, building new houses, that's destroying evidence. And so this, these population movements are, are an, an issue. Um, okay, and, oh, and the last point on that is the other thing I saw a lot of in the lead up to that report was people pointing to the fact that you have other conflicts in Myanmar right now too, not involving directly the Rohingya and other incidents of other minorities, other ethnic minorities um, suffering uh, at the hand of the government. You have the battle with the Arakan army and, and all of that, and that's all important. But the fact that you might have instance, other terrible atrocities, maybe other crimes against humanity or war crimes taking place involving these other groups, that's important, but it actually doesn't relate to the provisional measures, which are specific to the Rohingya, really. So I just wanted to say that. Yeah, so on the merits, um, you're asking, you know, what, what's the court going to be open to or how, how to get around this really difficult problem of proving genocidal intent? Um, and you're absolutely right to focus on that. And I've talked about this before. We've talked about this before. Uh, and I know you talked about this in the prior edition of this podcast. Um, for people who aren't familiar with that case law or the jurisprudence relating to the Genocide Convention, the ICJ has developed a, a very restrictive test in terms of how you prove this intent to destroy the protected group in whole or in part. That's the language of the Genocide Convention. That's what you have to show. And if you don't have direct proof, so a nice piece of paper, an official government document that spells it all out, which you probably don't have, you're going to be trying to prove your case by looking at pattern of conduct, um, by looking at what the government has actually done, maybe regardless of what it has said. And from that conduct, inferring an intent to destroy the protected group in whole or in part. And the difficulty is that the way the case law has developed in kind of a piecemeal fashion, and this comes from the ICJ cases involving Bosnia and Croatia, but also comes from the much more extensive um, case law from the Yugoslavia um, and Rwanda tribunals, um, which helped develop a jurisprudence of the Genocide Convention. Um, you have this really restrictive test and listeners might already be familiar with this, but the idea is that if you are going to infer genocidal content based on a pattern of conduct, that needs to be the only reasonable inference that can be drawn from that evidence. If you can infer some other intent, then that can defeat the claim. And that's a really restrictive standard. Uh, I don't think that it is, I don't think the way that the case law has developed is good. I'm not particularly, um, I don't endorse that particular test, but that is the test that has developed and that is the test that you have to work with, okay? So it's, it's easy and a lot of and, uh, people who know this stuff look at the case that the Gambia has brought and say, well, there's terrible evidence here, very clear evidence of terrible actions, terrible acts. But even when you have this overwhelming evidence, there are lots of ways that test that the ICJ has established in its case law 
gives the government who is defending itself, so Myanmar in this case, a lot of room to maneuver, a lot of space to make alternative arguments to say um, whether or not this stuff happened, because they may deny that the, that the actual atrocities even took place, but they say even if they took place, there was a different intent. This was about fighting terrorism. This was about fighting um, ARSA. This was about um, trying to resolve the citizenship issue. This was about trying to um, make illegal immigrants go back to where they came from. These are the types of arguments that you might hear. We didn't, we're not trying to kill all the Rohingya or destroy them physically. We just want them to leave. And that's kind of what, what, what ethnic cleansing refers to. Um, which isn't really a legal category, but is a way of describing a collection of, of actions that a government might take to try to displace a population, um, whether by killing them or creating such horrible conditions that they leave or some combination of those things. Okay. For, for, uh, forgive me for uh, interrupting. Yeah. It, wasn't that exactly the same argument that Myanmar's counsel, William Shabazz, made? Saying like, you know, uh, that you know, in 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 the interest of pushing their legal defense, um, Myanmar team uh, was prepared to make concessions that maybe war crimes have been committed. Yeah, uh, but you know the court, but the war crimes not the court's business. The court business here is simply and strictly, uh, you know, to, to hear the argument for and against genocide in Myanmar. Right. And exactly. so the Shabazz is also like involved in the previous, um, uh, uh, you know, cases or uh, providing some legal rationale to go with the technically very narrow definition of what constitutes mental, you know, or the, uh, uh, the, the subjective intent, you know, uh, that whether a, a particular type of group destruction was intentional or it was just a, simply a uh, accident. Yeah. And so, the, where would Myanmar go with this argument? You know, right. that, uh, there, there, there are other crimes, but, but the, those crimes don't concern the ICJ. Therefore, ICJ should just uh, basically, um, you know, end this proceedings. Yeah, I mean, you're, you, that's a good description of how Myanmar um, previewed its case at the provisional measures hearing. Um, and you're right, Bill, Bill Shavis is their lead counsel um, and is, an, is, an, is a genocide expert. Uh, and we can talk more about his role in, in the case if you like. Um, but you know, him making the argument that that's the test, that, this, that you have this very restrictive test about what you're allowed to infer and what you're not, um, was totally not surprising. And it was, it was an appropriate argument to make because that is what the, the court has said. And so Myanmar is, in a completely predictable way, trying to use the court's case law to its advantage and trying to map out, and at this at that early stage of the case, preview for the court the fact that there are lots of, they will say, there are lots of different um, intentions that you can infer from the evidence in front of you. And you're right, it's kind of extraordinary to say, well, we may have, uh, our forces may have committed war crimes, or maybe this even constitutes crimes against humanity, but that's of no concern to you. And, and they're right, the court has no jurisdiction 
to say anything about war crimes or, or crimes against humanity. The court can only weigh in on whether there have been violations of the Genocide Convention. So it's a very cynical argument to make. We committed crimes against humanity, but that proves that it wasn't genocide because there was some other intention here. Um, but you're right, that might be where they're going. I think what's more interesting maybe to focus, well, not more interesting, but important to focus on is, well, what can the Gambia do? What can the Gambia's legal team do to try to overcome this really high legal hurdle that's in front of them? If, if you're part of the, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Gambia team, you know, uh, what would you be uh, uh, thinking or exploring as a counter argument, uh, you know, like uh, giving given the overwhelming evidence of, you know, of some kind of, you know, international atrocity crimes been committed by Myanmar. I mean, there's absolutely no question, you know, like uh, uh, there's massive, um, uh, the, you know, documentation, you know, uh, the, the UN has established, uh, you know, uh, the in, um, uh, independent investigative uh, mechanism of Myanmar, IIMN, uh, with, uh, you know, nearly, uh, I don't know, 30 million US dollar budget based in Geneva, you know, and, and um, so it, it isn't the question of not having enough evidence. It is a question of uh, est establishing this genocidal intent. What would you be doing to counter, you know, Shabazz's or Myanmar's lead argument or main argument that, right. you know, there are other interpretations that are possible, therefore genocide argument cannot be made um, exclusively. Well, a few things. I don't think it works. I don't think it's a wise legal strategy to march into the Great Hall of Justice and, and announce to the court, you've got it in the last two cases that you had uh, dealing with the Genocide Convention, you got it wrong. That's a, not a good strategy. The way I would approach it is to accept that that is the test you have to show that there's no other reasonable inference that can be drawn from the massive evidence that we have in front of us. Now, there's a separate issue about that evidence maybe, and we could talk about that, but just accepting that there's a lot of evidence of uh, these mass atrocities in 2016 and 2017, and everything that comes before, you had brought this up before, suggesting that that's kind of outside the purview of the case. It's outside the purview of the case in terms of proving violations, let's say. The court isn't going to say, that, I would think, that, um, and isn't being asked to say that something that happened in 2002 constituted a violation of the Genocide Convention. But the court will certainly be asked to look at and will look at all of this, everything that came before, everything that came before 2016 and 2017 that creates the this overall framework from which you can infer genocidal intent so the discriminatory laws the way citizenship has been um, granted and pulled away uh, all of these things um, so if i were advising uh, the gambia or if i was on uh, gambia's legal team you know i would say this isn't about telling the court that the law is wrong or trying to get them to change the law change their legal interpretation of the genocide convention this is about focusing on the facts. You have to try to use the facts that you have within that test and to show that even under the very restrictive test that the court has adopted, the Gambia and the Rohingya still prevail here, that the facts are different from the situation that prevailed in Bosnia 
and the Bosnia and Croatia cases. So the, the legal team needs to, and I, I assume they're doing this, they need to be looking really closely at how can we distinguish. This is what lawyers do all the time. You have to distinguish past cases from the case you're working on if you don't, if the way that that past case came out isn't the way you want your case to come out. You need to play up and emphasize all of the things that are different, all of the ways in which this is not the same as Bosnia and Croatia, and you should not just follow the roadmap that you laid out for yourselves in those cases. And there are big differences. I mean, that those both of those cases involve the collapse of a federated state. Um, in some ways, they, they both involved armed conflict in a way that is not transferable to the situation in Myanmar. They both involved in some ways war over territory uh, and about trying to move population groups uh, out of certain territory. Um, the situations are really different and I think lent themselves more to the test that the court ended up adopting in, in, in those, those cases. So, you know, it's not, it's not to say that, you know, this drawing this uh, complete distinction between facts and law isn't really possible, but I think you approach the case not by saying that the law is wrong, but by saying that the facts of this case under the legal interpretation that the ICJ has adopted in the past still lead to a finding of, of genocidal intent and therefore a finding that Myanmar has breached its obligations under the convention. And this yeah. can even mean using the legal arguments that somebody like Bill Chavis has spent 20 years making. I mean, I think part of his argument is that, well, you need to, you need to show that there is a government policy rather than try to focus on what's in the, what's in the subjective mind of the individual um, soldier who's committing crimes. Okay. Yeah. Well, then that's I, what I, the I, community I, needs you, to do. They need to show that this was a policy and that policy is reflected from the collection of all of these laws and practices that have um, you know, discriminated against and led to the persecution and finally um, mass killings of Rohingya over a, yeah. a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, you, you talk about the, uh, the, the Bosnia case and, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, what happened in the Balkans in the context of uh, basically uh, the quasi-states or states war, interstate wars. Um, the, in the case of, um, you know, the, the Burmese mass killing and uh, mass terror against the Rohingya, uh, it is very clear that, um, you know, the, um, the situation has been presented as a, uh, a civil war situation with the uh, Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army as, uh, as a threat. You know, vastly exaggerated. The uh, fact-finding mission uh, report made it clear that ASA exists, uh, but ASA poses, you know, absolutely no existential threat uh, to, to the extent that um, Myanmar had to respond uh, with, uh, you know, completely unjustified um, use of uh, force, excessive uh, force, disproportionate use of force, whatever. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think that, uh, uh, you are aware because it just uh, surfaced a few days ago in the Burmese language, uh, the, the social media sign. The Arakan army, you know, the uh, Buddhist uh, Rakhine's um, um, uh, resistance group um, just uploaded, uh, you know, videotaped uh, confessions of four Burmese soldiers uh, that were, uh, you know, stationed in the um, uh, crime state of uh, Rakhine, particularly the um, Mount Budidang area. 
and one um, you know a soldier in particular uh, wearing Burmese um, army uniform stating his ID numbers everyone every one of the four Burmese soldiers that were captured by the Arakan army made confessions and one particular confession um, said uh, you know the commander uh, with the rank of lieutenant colonel uh, of the uh, the Burmese equivalent of rangers in the Rohingya area in 2017. You know, this is the time period that um, uh, Gambia is, uh, you know, pursuing this case. Has ordered to kill the th a group of 30 Rohingya men, women, and children. You know, and 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 uh, you know, the, this isn't a case of uh, you know. Uh, uh, this is a cold-blooded execution of 30 Rohingyas, completely unarmed, including children. This isn't a, you know, like people get, got killed in the firefight, you know, friendly uh, between the, the Asa and the Burmese. And so, so if the regiment commander issued um, basically point-blank execution of innocent Rohingyas, the, the question, you know, would be, what higher authorities have backed him? Yeah. You know, because um, um, the the field commanders do not, uh, you know, except in a like you know extremely confusing battle situation, do not carry out or issue these mass execution orders. That there has to be a chain of command. Who takes the responsibility? You know, it, obviously he relayed the order. But where did the order ultimately come came from? Right, I mean, right. come from. Um, well, yeah, that's that's news to me. Um, now that you know, there might be all sorts of problems with um, assessing the, the authenticity of a yeah. videotaped confession in in those circumstances. But but my question, what I didn't quite catch from your description of that was, is is the person referring to an order? that is something very recent or is this referring back to things from years past no 2017 okay, and uh, okay. the, yeah uh, the, the, right. the you know captured a burmese army soldier yeah. uh, one in particular who uh you know who took part in the massacre and right. then like uh, dumping the bodies in the mass grave in a particular place you know called down bazaar that's the name of a, a large village where the execution took place and he was a participant you know and then someone coming on you know against the backdrop of this international uh, criminal and 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 icj uh, proceedings or investigations yeah. you know someone getting on the um, on camera whether he's forced or not uh, stating his uh, um, you know authentic um, the soldier id and the name and the place of, of the massacre i mean it it, it, it isn't something that anyone in their sane mind will be prepared to do. You, you see what I mean? Yeah, I, no, I see what I see what you mean. And you know, absolutely. <laughs> so that's new information, and and uh, you know, I hope people are in a position to be able to follow up on on that information. But it points to um, an argument that the UN Human Rights Council's fact finding mission made in its first report. And so you know, I've read that report and. Coming from somebody who has read a lot of fact-finding mission and commission of inquiry. That's, that's your PhD thesis, right? It is. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of, of there's a lot, the people who put together those reports and who's, who are, who staffed that fact-finding mission, both the named um, commissioners, but also the, the people um, working behind the scenes, you know, they are due a lot of credit because they did some things in that report, in their reports that you don't see in, in every report. And that I thought, um, you know, reflect well on their efforts. One is a very clear explanation of their fact-finding methodology. That's a separate issue about um, the challenges that the court might face when it comes to deciding whether to give weight to the findings of these types of reports or not. But what I'm actually thinking of here is that they dealt with this very issue that we're talking about. They went into their legal analysis um, with pretty open eyes, I think, about the particular restrictions, the restrictive approach that the ICJ has taken to genocide convention and to the difficulty of inferring this this magical thing genocidal intent and they addressed it and if people are listening to this and go back to that initial report um, it's at and this tells you how long the report was this was at paragraphs 1434 to 1438 which is in part of their legal analysis it's just a small part but they they proactively tried to deal with this idea that well, Myanmar is going to argue that other intentions can be inferred from all of this evidence. And they make the pretty simple point, but a good point, which is that um, it's very difficult to reconcile any of the other explanations that Myanmar will, will put in front of the court with these situations where you have um, absolutely horrific events in a controlled environment, families, children, babies being Killed in horrific ways, people being burned alive—all you know—all these awful things that we've that we've read about or heard about or have spoken with people who've experienced firsthand. Um, it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile that type of evidence. As long as you find that evidence credible. Yeah, you you're referring to explanations. Yeah, you're That's referring to the uh, you know, I, I I think you're referring to the first. Um, FFM report issued in September, I think like 18, 2018 in Geneva, yes. uh, over 300 pages. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think like, you know, one of the issues that, um, or the characteristics of the killings, um, you know, uh, is the extreme brutality with which the uh, troops were carrying out. And also, you know, the, um, the group identity as a marker you know, uh, that uh, the, the troops were uh, basically uh, um, shouting as they were killing, you know, you know and it's, it, it wasn't simply, the, well, uh, this is like, you know, in, in um, uh, it, uh, we are under, the troops were unable to distinguish, you know, uh, enemy combatants uh, to use the American, uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, ter war and terror lingo from yeah. the, um, civilian population you know when yeah. when when you are throwing babies into the fires you know i mean like you know ah, that you you don't you don't need a broad daylight to pick up a baby and then say this is a baby or this is a terrorist you know what i mean and then so i think i think like it's yeah a, i mean those, those types of situations are totally different from you know what we've heard about in the last few months um, like very shortly after the icj provisional measures order came out there were reports that a remaining Rohingya village had um, suffered some, had been shelled or had been hit by um, bombs 
and the explanation was that this was kind of collateral damage in the fight between the government and the Arakan army. Um, you know, that kind of falls into a gray area about whether, you know, to what extent is, is, is Myanmar making sure that those types of, that that type of conduct, which very well might be a war crime, um, you know, doesn't take place, but that's totally different than the types of incidents that are documented in the UN fact-finding missions report and in, in other reports by NGOs and other groups as well, and by the special rapporteur. Um, so, you know, I thought the fact-finding mission was wise to not pretend that the court's restrictive case law doesn't exist, which is somehow sometimes how these types of reports proceed. They, they don't really engage with the law as it has been stated, but they express how they would like the law to, to look or how they think it should look. It's a different approach. But they were clear-eyed about it. They said, we know that this is the standard and this is the way, um, this is how you show that that standard doesn't defeat our conclusion that this is genocidal intent. Now, I don't think that the ICJ should just simply accept a legal conclusion by a fact-finding mission. The, the court needs to come to that conclusion itself. But for the Gambia, I mean, this wasn't a very long part of the fact-finding missions report, but it clearly, you know, it present, it provides the foundation or the initial blueprint for how you're, you have to construct this argument within the world that the court has created. You know, and I don't think the court went over the 20 years of its genocide convention case law. I don't think the court has tried to intentionally kind of create um, an extremely narrow test that makes it very hard to prove genocidal intent. Um, I think yeah, they have. I think they have responded to the situations in front of them and developed legal tests and interpretations to deal with that particular situation. And this is the way case law develops. And you can end up, and this can happen to any court, you can end up painting yourself into a corner where the interpretation that you adopted that maybe worked, maybe people may have disagreed with it, but you adopted it for a specific reason in a specific case. And then you get to another case where the facts are quite different and you're trying to apply the same legal interpretation that you used before for reasons of consistency and predictability and all of that. And it just doesn't work very well anymore. It, it ends up um, defeating the purpose of the convention or undermining the goals of the, of the convention in a way that maybe wasn't the case when you applied it the first time around. So yeah, there, there, there seems to be, um, you know, uh, one serious worry. If, you know, in due course, you know, uh, assessing the merits of the case, the court finally ruled that Myanmar did not commit genocide, you know, uh, because this is the third case uh, before the court uh, since the convention's adoption. You know, although like uh, uh, there are other intimate uh, uh, Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Kamaru's tribunal, but they're separate from the ICJ. Uh, the, the worry is that um, the the genocide convention could become neutered by the, uh, you know, the extreme, extremely high or narrow uh, interpretation of the intent. And so did we, could you care to comment on that, uh, you know, uh, obviously valid uh, uh, worry coming from uh, uh, people who are concerned about, you know, uh, egregious uh, human rights abuses, uh, most particularly atrocity crimes? Sure, I mean, I think probably a lot of people already think that that's happened based on the way the court, um, 
approach things in the Bosnia case and then kind of double down on that approach in the, in the Croatia case. Um, I think I, in response though, I'd go back to this idea that facts really matter and there's still, even though the test is quite restrictive, I think there's still room if you have good lawyers who approach it in a strategic and careful way, there, I wouldn't say it's a dead letter. Um, even if, now, but if this case fails, uh, it might fail for any number of reasons. It might not fail because of the reason we've been focused on, this difficulty of proving genocidal intent. Um, there might be other problems that come up in terms of the court being able to rely on, on the evidence. Uh, hopefully not. I, you know, I hope that the court finds a way to test the evidence put in front of it so that it can satisfy itself uh, in terms of what evidence is credible or not. What should be given weight or not? Yeah, um, just, just just so sorry. Yeah, just so uh, I and others understand you very clearly. What you are saying is, uh, without having to challenge the code uh, to expand its definition of genocidal intent, even going with its narrower definition, you think the merits of the case can potentially establish that Myanmar had um, acted with the intent to destroy the Rohingya. Is that, am, I, am I correct? In I do, I do. I think, um, I mean, I'm not a lawyer on the team. I haven't seen all the evidence, but I think uh, there's a, a good argument to be made that the test can be satisfied here, along the lines of what very concisely the fact-finding mission suggested. You know, in its, in its attempt to say, we know that, the, that Myanmar will argue other conclusions should be inferred from the evidence. Um, and they did a good job of, of laying out um, the basic arguments for why those arguments, and the two main arguments were, oh, this was counterterrorism; it's not a campaign of genocide. And the other argument was, well, this is about affecting a, a kind of a demographic policy, but it's not about destroying the Rohingya, it's, it's more or less about getting them to leave. Um, they, they took both of those head on and suggested arguments that the Gambia can now develop in much greater detail to show why those aren't reasonable inferences. Because it, it can't just be any other, I mean, you can always come up with some other inference. It has to be a reasonable inference. Is there a reasonable uh, understanding for how this could have happened that, that isn't explained by an intention to wipe out the group, to destroy the physical Rohingya population. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I think this case. I think this case is a you know, this case is a better case, let's say, in terms of making those types of claims than the Bosnia and Croatia cases. I think. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, but virtually every single reputable, you know, uh, the legal research entity, whether it's with the U U.S. Holocaust Museum or the um, you know U.S. State Department uh, outsourced a legal uh, you know team in um, uh, Washington. You know I think you're aware that the State Department itself um, uh, commissioned a um, a full investigation involving 1,000 witnesses. Uh, you know over three months um, in in uh, Cox's Bazaar in the camps, and they've established uh, uh, you know uh, the, uh, the, some of the most objective findings. At, you know, following the uh, 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 FFM report, uh, the you know the the idea that you know the uh, the genocidal intent and the genocide is is really 
all about semantics, interpretation. You know, I heard this like with my own ears uh, from former um, Amnesty International South Asia director, um, who's now with the, um, um, the Chatham House saying, you know, look, this is all semantics. You know, is, is there something more to, you know, holding states uh, to account on the crimes of genocidal nature uh, than, you know, uh, the open interpretation, you know, is there like, you know, objective physical reality, you know, what you, you, would, uh, the, you know, you, we would call it evidence, um, or is it just that, you know, the, the, the games with words and rules, you know, if that's the case, uh, then like we're all doomed, uh, you know, that, that those who are concerned about, uh, you know, past and present victims of the atrocity crimes. Well, I mean, you know, legal argument, uh, there, it is a lot about semantics and wordplay. Um, you know, it reminds me of the very first time you and I ever interacted uh, at that at that event at Trinity College Dublin, because my question to you after that session had to do with um, why do, do we need to emphasize, do we need to focus on proving that this is genocide when it's much easier to characterize what's happened here as crimes against humanity. And I won't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, your part of your answer at least had to do with the fact that that may be, but the effect, the impact of characterizing something as a genocide, right or wrong, is so different from characterizing it as crimes against humanity. Uh, and maybe that isn't how the world should be, but that's how the world works. And so it matters whether you can have an authoritative um, voice declaring something a genocide. And I, I can't really disagree with that. That's how the world works, for better or for worse. And the other part of it, though, is, you know, the reason that we tie ourselves up in knots about is something a gen is something genocide or not, or really in a more technical legal sense, have there been breaches of obligations under the Genocide Convention? Um, that's because you have the Genocide Convention, and the Genocide Convention makes it possible in some situations for states to bring these cases at the ICJ. There is no international state-to-state um, -state treaty on crimes against humanity. People have, have advocated for one and lobbied for something equivalent to the Genocide Convention for a long time. I think, well, I don't want to say what Bill Chavis's position is, but I, I think that's part of his overall view, that that's a more... The, the legal test for crimes against humanity is more forgiving in some ways, um, more realistic, better tailored to the situations of the world than the Genocide Convention. But the Genocide Convention is what we have. That's where we have an ICJ dispute settlement clause. And so that's why we end up with this kind of contorted um, jurisprudence, the case law about interpreting the Genocide Convention, whereas crimes against humanity are left to the criminal tribunals. You know, if you want to understand the case law around crimes against humanity, you don't look at the ICJ, you look at what uh, the International Criminal Court is doing. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, the, you know, ICC and its uh, uh, prosecutor's office has opened a full investigation into, you know, crimes against humanity and, and other crimes that link to the crimes against humanity, particularly the crime of deportation. Yeah? But that's a separate issue. But yeah. looking ahead, you know, uh, as you're aware, the, uh, a couple of uh, Rohingya uh, researchers and activists themselves, uh, you know, pan, uh, you know, co-author a piece yesterday, I believe, in the uh, uh, the Yangon or Rangoon-based uh, frontier 
uh, the, the news group and the website saying that, look, you know, we, we know, you know, what we suffer. We suffer the crime of genocide. But, but you know, uh, but, but what we actually need, you know, uh, in terms of justice for us is the shift, is, uh, you know, the significant shift or improvement in the material conditions, you know, the, the rights of the Rohingyas to exist as, a, as a equal and full citizens in, you know, in their own uh, region inside Myanmar. Um, the, if, if the ICJ case, you know, goes on, you know, say um, for another five years, three years, seven years, we don't know, right? Um, the Rohingyas are voicing their frustrations and, and, and you know, fair enough. Uh, the, what do you think are the um, non-legal measures that um, you know Rohingyas and other human rights uh, advocates should be looking at while the case is going uh, forward? You know, this 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 cannot be either or. You know, and obviously the ICJ is not going to be uh, issuing uh, you know the uh, the order that can be enforced with the UN peacekeeping force or endorsed by the Security Council uh, because of the paralysis uh, uh, you know among the uh, veto holders in New York right so there's a few there's a lot of issues there um, there's the there's the problem of the fact that the case will take some period of time not as long I hope as some people are, are concerned about 15 but, years in Bosnia Bosnia case yeah well you know I'll say those it's it's unfortunate that you know, we have to look to the Bosnia and Croatia cases as a kind of a precedent of how long does a case take those cases were bedeviled by other really complicated issues that had to do with the breakup of Yugoslavia and the changing international identity of what became Serbia and that added a lot of delay, and um, they're not. You, you were happen. you were with the court as a legal, uh, you know, fellow at the time, right? When the when these two cases were proceeding, uh, Bosnia was completely finished by the time I arrived at the court in 2010. Uh, the Croatia case was pending, and the final briefing. So that's the parties um, putting in their written submissions. The final briefing finished up while I was there, and the oral hearing when the parties appeared in front of the judges to make their final arguments and they examined some witnesses and experts as well. That took place while I was there, but I actually then left the court just as it went into the phase of deliberations. So I was involved um, in the kind of almost final stages of the case, but by the time the court had started um, discussing and drafting its judgment, I was gone. Um, so I, I know that case though, uh, better what's in some ways than the Bosnia case, having experienced some of, of the argumentation. Um, yeah, so you know, those are bad examples though for how long the case takes. And I'll just say, I'll take this opportunity, Zarni. It's one of my pet peeves, I suppose, or something that always bothers me because it's so easy to beat up on the ICJ for how long the cases take. And people always mention that. And I always like to say, well, that is in many ways driven by states. It's driven by the parties. It has to do with how much time they ask to put in their written submissions. Um, now, some of that blame can fall on the court. The court could push them to, to accept shorter deadlines, but the court is pretty sensitive and deferential to the to state's requests, especially the state that has brought the case. Um, and so, for example, we just saw the other day that Gambia 
requested an extension for the filing of its first memorial. That's the yeah for three three months. Three months. So and that was interesting because the court had adopted for it a really short schedule. This might to people unfamiliar with the ICJ or even kind of the way courts operate in in other in, at the state level or arbitrations. Um, in this case, the court had ordered had essentially given. Gambia six months and then six months for Myanmar to respond. That's as short as it gets. That's fast. Um, in most cases, especially really complicated, both legally and factually cases like this case, um, it wouldn't be unusual to see each side get a year to put together their submissions, which might seem crazy to somebody on the outside. But having worked in not only at the ICJ, but before that in private practice, working on international arbitrations and things like that, that time, when you're working on a really complicated case, that time flies by, especially if a lot of your work involves trying to talk to people on your own side, people at your client, just trying to get a hold of them and gather all the information, put it together in a, in a proper legal brief, that time flies by. Anyway, my point is that the states ask for time and the court gives it to them. And that's, what, that's part of what drags out the proceedings uh, and why, you, why probably the average length of a case is something like four to five years and then every now and then you have these outliers where something weird happens and you end up with a 10-year yeah but i think in in the in, in this case that i think that gambia uh, apparently feels a sense of urgency and uh, you know i i think that this this case can um, go as quickly as possible within the current system uh, what advice do you have to the rohingyas and the uh, uh, the human rights uh, uh, community that supports the Rohingyas' right to uh, life and existence as, uh, you know, uh, the uh, uh, citizens of uh, Burma with yeah. all the rights pertaining to being uh, uh, part of the uh, national community. Yeah, so let me, I'll get back to your original question because I want to, what you reiterated there. Um, you know, I, sitting here in Ireland, I'm in no position to um, tell people just be patient or you shouldn't feel frustrated by the by the delay or the uncertainty the uncertainty about whether the case will succeed and the uncertainty about whether even if it succeeds and even if the court were to issue exactly the relief that, that you might want in your wildest dreams ordering Myanmar to fix the citizenship law and do all of these things even if the court were to do that and I don't know that it would even go that far well, how can it be enforced? I get that there's a lot of uncertainty and I'm in no position to tell people not to be frustrated or to just sit back and wait. I understand that. People should be impatient and people should be frustrated. Um, that is completely understandable and, and justified. So what can you do while this case is pending? Uh, I feel some responsibility here because as you, as you said in, at the opening, I was somebody who wasn't necessarily proposing that there should be this case, but I suggested that it was a, an idea worth exploring. And um, I think other people were probably having those ideas at the same time. And for whatever reason, it, it has happened. Um, but I feel some responsibility to say, and I've tried to say this all along, the ICJ case can't at the same time be considered as kind of the cure-all that this is a that you, you file an ICJ case and you win an ICJ case, and that is like waving a magic wand that is going to make all of the struggles of the Rohingya people disappear, that that's going to solve it, and that's going to be the end of it. 
it doesn't work to think of it that way. And if people have gotten that impression, or if that's the impression that has been um, the story that has been given to them, that's really, uh, that's unfortunate and it's misleading. The ICJ case has to be seen as part of a much larger strategy campaign of trying to effect the type of change and reform that is needed. The case can act, I think, as a focal point for those efforts. I think already the case has probably um, had some kind of benefit simply in raising awareness. There might be lots of people who uh, in, in other parts of the world who weren't particularly familiar with this conflict and with this situation, with the plight of the Rohingya, who maybe now have at least heard about it and are maybe concerned enough to want to do something about it, whether that means donating money to aid groups or something else, uh, lobbying their own governments to take stronger positions. Um, but it has to be part of this bigger strategy. So what those different initiatives can be, I think that's hard to say. I don't, don't know that I'm the best placed person to advise on that either, but I would stress the idea that the case can be used as kind of a platform to build upon. So if the case provides uh, an avenue for Rohingya in refugee camps in Bangladesh to have their voices heard, not just for the sake of having their voices heard, but actually to convey what they want, what their wishes are, what are their priorities, what types of outcomes are acceptable to them and which are not. I think that's important. Um, I think that the case can be a way for other states or activists in other states to try to focus their efforts uh, while the case is pending um, to use that maybe as a kind of a pressure point in trying to push governments to take a harder line. One of the things that the fact-finding mission did was publish this report about um, businesses operating in, in Myanmar uh, and how states and businesses are, are essentially uh, propping up the, the regime um, through foreign investment and, and things like that. Uh, you know, that's a fraught area because at the one hand, when you try to intervene in that area, innocent people, civilians um, can, can suffer too if you try to cut off economic activity. But, you know, I think there's something to be said for states that seem to have turned a blind eye or seem to not be concerned with the plight of the Rohingya, um, who should be, if those states can be made to see things differently. Um, well, of course, like, you know, like if the, we are talking about, even if the court has not uh, reached a stage where it, it, it is ready to pronounce this to be a genocide, uh, I think if a member state stands credibly accused of commissioning the crime of genocide, we cannot have a business as usual, you know, I mean, yeah. not, not after the Holocaust, you know, 75 years ago. And uh, I think, I think it's, it's to its, to its great credit that uh, the Rohingya activist and, and myself, uh, we heard for the first time from you of how ICJ could be a tool for justice and accountability. And, you know, you came to Paris in um, the, the, the June, 2000 and, 18, you know, a few months after we met in Dublin, uh, you delivered this, uh, you know, very uh, the, the thoughtful, but still like cautious, uh, uh, the, you know, uh, suggestion that, um, that the activists should pursue this ICJ 
venue and then you brief the uh, Bangladeshi speaker of the parliament who was there you know on a uh, in a small group setting and so so the, the, thank you so much for injecting uh, you know a potentially very um, you know effective or promising um, uh, initiative and obviously we are seeing the Rohingya community uh, have been given you know a, a sense of hope you know and now the question is um, you know, uh, I mean, the issue now is that to make sure that they are not given false hope and their expectations are managed, uh, you know, with a, 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 a informed understanding of what the ICJ can and cannot deliver in terms of what Rohingya needs. And so I think we are uh, just a little bit over one hour. So um, I'll give you a few minutes if you want to uh, leave us with your final thoughts and uh, um, and uh, we are talking to uh, almost uh, Dr. Michael Becker, um, international legal expert and uh, former um, <clears throat> legal um, fellow with the International Court of Justice for four years. Well, Mike. thanks so much for having me uh, on to, to speak with you, Zarni. Uh, you know, I think it's exactly two years ago today, maybe, that I was um, meeting you and um, talking with with colleagues and others at that event in Paris. Uh, and it's kind of amazing to see everything that has happened since then. And I hope that everything that has happened, um, you know, is towards the good, is towards finding um, a way out of this. Um, but it is going to require action beyond the ICJ case while it's taking place, whenever that case is finished, following up on it. Um, it's been really interesting seeing people call for other states to intervene in, in the in the ICJ case, and that's something other parties to the Genocide Convention could do. The Maldives has indicated they plan to do that, and people are arguing still that maybe Canada should do that. And I've been skeptical about that because if you're coming in to more or less repeat the same legal arguments that the Gambia is going to make, it doesn't really serve any legal benefit. Um, if you're going to make different arguments, that's maybe a different story. Um, but what, the reason I bring that up is to just say that governments that are thinking about that might also think about, well, are the resources that we might put towards intervening in the case, could they be put towards other aspects of the problem, of the situation, of finding a, a, a strategy and a solution to help the Rohingya in a material way right now? Um, whether that means improving conditions in the camp, trying to come up with a more sustainable uh, situation there, whether it means increasing opportunities for refugee resettlement. I know that may not be the ideal outcome for people who want to go back to their homes, but it may be better than other alternatives. Um, and ultimately, putting pressure continually on the Myanmar government and the other states that are the staunchest backers of the Myanmar government to change. I mean, it's a, it, it sounds idealistic and maybe naive, but um, I don't know what the alternative is. And I hope that the ICJ case inspires or helps people to organize their activity around those efforts, whether or not they're formally participating in, in the proceedings or not. So I'll leave it there and I look forward um, to maybe speaking with you again as, as more things happen in this case as it proceeds 